Hello, welcome to Kings uh, and Prophets Part 7. Um, thank you for all who are joining me live and for blessings to those who will join this later. I, I was, I'm running late today, so give me a second to get my screen ready and, and have my PowerPoint ready. Okay. All right. Let me just get this all ready. I've really been enjoying doing this study. Okay. So let me get down to where I'm at. We're already, <laughs> it's so funny. I think we're on part seven and howdy, Warwolf. So good to see you this morning. I think I'm already up to, I don't know, like 130 slides or something as we're making our way through this. But I hope you guys are learning even half as much as what I'm learning by doing this study. It's really changing my perspective on some things. And, um, and I am grateful for that. Okay. Almost there. There we go. Okay. I think this is yes. This is where I am at. Okay, so let me get that and add this to the screen. So here we are. We are on part seven today. Hello, past, present herbs. Glad you're with us. And Lee and James, so good to have you guys. Okay, let me add this to the screen. Well, I did add it to the screen. Let me go on to my next one. All right, so here's where we're starting today. So as I was really looking through everything, um, I just kind of wrote myself some notes in here. And one of the big things that I want to remember, and, and my mercy poured forth, reminded me of this this morning. People are fragile and we've got to handle them with care. And no one but Yah knows what's going on in the heart of a man, right? As we look at all the different things that are going on. Our war is against principalities and powers and wicked and wickedness in high places, right? And and it it manifests through people here on the earth, but we've got to separate in our mind between people and what's driving people. Okay. So I'm just gonna to try to read through a little bit of my notes. I really am drawn to a deep appreciation of the prophetic gifts and operation in the books and the books of the kings. The turbulent times we read about in ancient Israel reminds me so much of where we are right now in the times we live in. Considering this, it prompts me to be grateful for every little thing, every breath, every sip of water, every bite of food, our families, our friends, our homes, a real appreciation of exactly how fragile we are and appreciate the amazing love and care y'all has for us. 
In the book of Kings, the example is seen that it is humility before our maker that precedes amazing miracles and personal victory for his followers. And what I love is the fact that I know Yahweh is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not, right? There's no variableness nor shadow of turning right in him. All right. So uh, let's get on with some of the research. I was looking at the book of Yosephus. Um, it, it's called Yosephus Antiquities. Suffer Publishing puts this out. I was looking in book nine, chapter one, and this is all about King Jehoshaphat. This is kind of where we left off last time, um, uh, where we're at in the story. Uh, King Ahab had talked uh, Jehoshaphat into going uh into going to war with him, right? And um, to come and be um, an assistant there. And so, uh, of course, this is what this section's talking about. It says, when Jehoshaphat the king had come to Yerushalayim for the assistance he had afforded Akav or Ahab, right? The king of Yasharel. When he fought with Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, right? Remember, that was what had happened. Ahab had said, hey, will you come and fight this war with me? And they called the prophet. You know, he said, don't you have any real prophets here? <laughs> let's get a word from him. And the real prophet, Micaiah, lets Ahab know, you're going to go to battle, but it's going to cost you your life, right? And, and that's exactly what happens. So the prophet, um, Yehu, then confronts Jehoshaphat. Okay. So King, the prophet Yehu met him and accused him of assisting a Akav, right? Ahab, a man, both impious and wicked. He said to him that Elohim was displeased with him for doing so, but that he delivered him from the enemy, notwithstanding he had sinned because of his own proper disposition. Okay, which was good. He's saying, you know, your your record had been good, but boy, did you make a mistake there. But Yah decided to deliver you nonetheless and give you another chance, right? And this is the message of the prophet. Whereupon the king betook himself to thanksgiving and sacrifices to Elohim. See, look, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat had the same response that King David did when he was confronted with his sin and his mistakes. He fell on his face and repented. And so you see the same heart here in Jehoshaphat, right? He was a good king and he repented. So he, he betook himself to thanksgiving and sacrifices to Elohim, after which he presently went over all that country, which he ruled round about and taught the people the Torah which Elohim gave them by Moshe and the observant worship that was due to him. He also constituted judges in every single one of the cities of his kingdom and charged them thus to have regard for doing justice more so than judging the multitude, to not be moved by bribes, to not be moved by the dignity of men imminent for either their riches or their high birth. Most importantly, to distribute justice equally to all as knowing that Elohim is conscious of every secret action of theirs. So that's, I mean, that's what we see. King Jehoshaphat, 
it, he he's saying, you know what? We're not going to have unbalanced scales here. We're going to do things the way Yah would have us do them. We're going to do them in a way that doesn't honor men because they were born to the, a royal household or they were born into money. We're going, you know, we're not going to judge our things that way. We're not going to be susceptible to bribes. Okay. We're going to actually have justice. Okay. So he set things right in the, in the Southern kingdom. All right. So here's a few more notes here. These sought a country by Robert L. Kate pages 243 and 244. I took some things from those pages here. So this is interesting. It goes a little further in the story and we're going to, we're kind of going to circle back to this, but I wanted to go with this right here because it just kind of makes sense in the, the way that I'm presenting things. So he's saying, in addition to the biblical sources for the study of this period of time. So we're looking at this, this period of time that when you look at just the Northern Kingdom, it's about a 200 year period of time. And that's what we're looking at right now. And then, you know, a little further, we'll extend that out until we see the house of Judah taken into captivity also. Good morning, Oliver. Good to have you with us today. Okay, so the period of time of the two nations of Hebrew people, there are numerous records from the ancient Near East, which are important. The Assyrians kept what has come to be called an eponym list, a list of the major personages and events of each year of their national history. This, coupled with their king's list, allows a very detailed reconstruction of this era. There are numerous monuments which record or depict events in which the people of the Hebrew kingdoms were involved. For example, the Black Obelisk of Shalemanzer III actually depicts King Jehu of Israel paying tribute to the Assyrian monarch. This not only gives us historical information, but also portrays the clothing and hairstyles of the day. The Babylonian Chronicle also correlates with the last days of Assyria, allowing for a cross-check of the Assyrian records. Archaeological excavations in Palestine give us visible records of the daily life in Israel and Judah. So I found this picture is just one little part of what you can find if you just Googled Black obelisk of Shalemaneser III at the British Museum of World History. Okay, there's a huge article all about this. You can see, see, this would be the king, right, of Assyria. And here is King Jehu and, you know, bowing down to him. So very interesting here that we do have other historical records that help us put together what was happening because the biblical stories, as we've talked about before, you know, these are usually to help us on our journey, but sometimes to understand everything in context, some history is good to know. All right. So the excavations of Samaria show us abundant evidence of daily life in Israel 
during its last half century. There's clear evidence of abundant wealth on one hand and abysmal poverty on the other. There are also records showing large quantities of wine being consumed. Further, the large number of personal names which have been found in the region, which are made up of compounds with Baal, show that the worship of Baal was extremely popular and widespread at the time. All of this multiplied by the various sites which have been ex excavated adds significant depth to our understanding of the day. You know, I'm thinking, you know, we know a good portion of the Northern Kingdom, um, a lot of Ephraimites we can see, or uh, those of Manasseh and, and, and many, because America is kind of a melting pot, but in, in, in the major nations of today, there's a lot of wine consumed, right? There's a lot of highfalutin going on. There's a lot of partying going on and, and excavations later. Can you imagine the wine bottles and liquor bottles <laughs> that would be found when people look back at our history? They have to, they would have to look at us and say, what a bunch of drunks and gluttons, right? <laughs> no wonder their society fell. All they did was party. That's what it would look like. And, and so they found the same thing. It's, it's kind of a neat mirrored picture, you know, um, you know, it's not so much that things are new, but they come around again. And, and I see this in this story with these Kings and prophets, I see a cry, you know, for repentance and to wake up before disaster falls. And I, that's what I'm seeing in our societies right now. There's such a wake up call. And so Isaiah really fit here. Cause it really talks about this one. Uh, I see so many people joining us and I just want to just give a big shout out and say hello to everyone who has joined. So glad that you're all here. Thanks for joining me today. So reading through Isaiah 28, starting in verse one, it says, woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. I mean, think about this. Think about world powers when they end, no matter which century they're in, think about whichever is on that world power scene. And right now, you know, the United States of America has been that world power for, for quite a while, but yet it's the beauty is like a fading flower. Look at our cities. Look at the destruction that's happening. Think about the city of Seattle. You, It's not even safe to go to go there after dark right? Look at the needles found in parks and the drug abuse and the tent cities. And I mean, it's just, you've got opulence on one hand and absolute decadence, you know, on, on another and pov extreme poverty, you've got it all going on. And so this was a message before Assyria captured all of Samaria, which is the capital of where the house of Ephraim, the house of Yasharel had made their abode, the Northern kingdom. So this is a direct message by Isaiah to this, to, to them. <laughs> I love where, where we'll, who's saying I avoided Seattle, even in the daytime. I'm with you. I'm with you, sister. <laughs> Absolutely. 
All righty. So let's just read through what Isaiah had to say. He said, woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Behold, Adonai has a mighty and strong one, which as a tempest of hail and a destroying storm and as a flood of mighty waters overflowing shall cast down to the earth with the hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim shall be trodden under feet. And the glorious beauty, which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower. And as the hasty fruit before the summer, which when he that looks upon it sees while it is yet in his hand, he eats it up. In that day shall Yahweh Zavaot be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty unto the remnant of his people. And for a ruach of judgment to him that sits in judgment and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They Air in vision, they stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept. Line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. He's saying you've got to give up these ways that that dull you, you know, and, and make you at ease when you shouldn't be at ease in, in ways that you should not be in ease with in the culture, right? We are in the world, but not of the world, right? Because he's looking for someone to teach knowledge. But it's got to be them that can handle the strong word, right? The, the word as Yah says it, not as we would like it to be. It's got to be, that's being weaned from the milk. It's not, it's not finding one or two words out of scripture and building a doctrine around it. It's being able to take it from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 through the end and understand it in context and understand this is one Yah, right? He is one. He is a Kod. Yahweh Yahusha is a Kod, okay? And, and, and being able to see that he changes not. And, and he said, when he said something, he meant it from beginning to end. And there are, if you're thinking that the word is contradicting, it's because you're not getting the context. <laughs> you need to dig a little further. That's, that's my opinion with that. All right. All right. Isaiah 28, 11, for with foreign lips and another tongue, will he speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear it. But the word of Yahweh was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, 
line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. He's saying, if, if you're not getting what I'm saying, it's because I've laid it out for you, but you don't want to hear it. You're going, listen, I like this part and I like this part, but for, as for the rest of it, I'm going to go la, 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 la. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And I don't want to do it that way because I like doing what I like doing. I like worshiping on the day I want to worship on. I like eating what I want to eat. I like going where I want to go. And, you know, when saved, all saved is what my preacher said. And so I'm good. Check mark, right? You're not taking in the full counsel. Okay. So why was Baalism so attractive? to the Hebrew people. Why did they have this? Why would they be drawn to this? Why are we drawn to it in our culture today? This is what we really want to see from all this study. Now, we, we, there's lessons. The reason that we're, all this is written in scripture is for our teaching, our reproof, our admonition. There are things to learn here from these stories. They're not just stories. It's so that we can be strong as we face adversity. So looking a little further into the same book, The Sought a Country by Robert L. Cates in pages 248 and 251, he's talking about both Amos and Hosea described the 8th century BC as an era when religion was thriving but it was also being tragically debased by its assimilation with the ball worship of Canaan, right? People are very religious and you can see it in this day. I mean, we've got a religion going on that I, I mean, it's apostasy, but it's a religious belief. You know, it's being, um, ex, it's being exalted as the savior of mankind coming from science. <laughs> it's really frightening. <laughs> right? And, and it is that same, I'm telling you, it's the same Baal worship that it's always been. It hasn't changed. And as we look into what this is, hopefully everybody will begin to be able to see that, that the, the, the devils haven't changed. <laughs> They're the same fallen entities that, that fell from the beginning that have influenced these things. Okay. You, you are seeing it right now. They may have seen it. They might've showed up in, in Greek as the Titans. They show up in Rome as something else. They show up in all these different cultures as other things and other names, but it's the same thing. They're showing up right now in comic books right? The Marvel comics and all the movies and different things that are coming out and TV shows. It's the same entities. All right. Amos 4.4. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this likes you, O children of Yasharel, says Adonai Yahweh. He said, this is what you like to do. You like to come and say that you're offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving, but you're doing it with leaven, right? When I'm telling you, eat unleavened, 
right? Uh, so, I mean, he's looking at their, so I, I believe he's trying to reference that they've changed the nature of Passover right here. He's saying, you want to do it with leaven. You want to publish, you know, free real offering. Yes, it's for everyone, you know, that the children of Yasharel are polluting things. They're, they're, they're twisting things. This is what you like to do. This is what he's saying, you know, for this is what you like. That's what Yah is saying. In Amos 5, 21 through 27, it says, I hate, this is Yah talking about this, right? About how people like to switch things up and, and honor him in their way right? So that it fits in and they don't look so weird and it fits in with the rest of the world. And gosh, don't all paths just really lead to the same place anyway? No, they don't. They really don't. Okay. Amos 5, 21 through 27. I hate, I despise your feast days and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though you offer me ascending smoke offerings and your oblations, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beast. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your viols. But let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Have you offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Yasharel? But ye have borne the tabernacle of Molech. And Kayun, your images, the star of your Elohim, which ye made to yourselves. Therefore, will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, says Yahweh, whose name is Ha Elohai Zabaot, right? He is the king of the angel armies. on with this next one. In Hosea chapter two, he says, plead with your mother, right? And in Hosea one, and, and we're going to do a deep study in this as we go through the prophets, y'all willing, <laughs> and the internet stays up, <laughs> right? And that's where we'll head next. But, um, but in Hosea one, you know, he's had, he's had Hosea, the prophet go marry a harlot and have children. Right. And, and so we see that and we see a promise of redemption for them, even though they were children of a harlot. Right. And now we've gone into chapter two. All right. Plead with your mother, plead for she's not my woman, neither am I her man. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breast, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the house of Yasharel, right? As, as a bride, <laughs> as, as someone you know, that he had been married to, okay? And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. 
that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink, all the other nations, right? All the, and, and their gods. And, and this is what started coming in through Solomon, right? With making all the treaties. We've, we've seen that in this study. Now down to Hosea 2.14 through 17. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. Right. He's like, I'm going to take you away from all that opulence. Right. And I'm going to bring you to a desolate place. And there I'm going to teach you about me. I'm going to let you see that I am El Shaddai, that I am the all sufficient one right? Because I'm going to speak comfort to you when everything that you see looks desolate and dead and as if it couldn't possibly, how would we even survive, right? It's like, I'm going to show you who I am and I will give her vineyards from thence, right? Out of the wilderness. He's like a place where nothing is growing, nothing is green. I'm going to give you vineyards right there. And the valley of Accor, right? That's that that valley of tears for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth. And, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Mitzrayim, of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, says Yahweh, that you shall call me Ishi. And she shall call me no more Bali, right? You're not going to call me Baal, Lord, anymore. You're going to call me, is she my husband? My husband. For I will take away the names of the Baliim out of her mouth. Because Baal is a title, right? There's Baal this, Baal that, Baal another, you know? It, it, it just depends on what title they're using that it's a it's just like a title lord this lord that right that's what baal is for i will take away the names of the baalim right because they believed in this multitude you know the ball that's going to give me food the ball that's going to give me rain the ball that's going to give me the you know what it, whatever it was but i'm going to take away the names of the baalim out of her mouth and they shall no more be remembered by their name. They won't even be remembered. Okay. Hosea 4, 6 through 14. My people are destroyed for lack of, of the knowledge. Because you have rejected the knowledge. I will also reject you. That you shall be no priest to me. Seeing you have forgotten the Torah of your Elohim, I will also forget your children. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore, will I change their glory into shame. He's saying, you decided you didn't need the scriptures in your school system. You didn't want that there. It wasn't necessary. There was no place for the word of, of Yah in the public square, right? You don't care about that stuff. You don't want to live by those rules. We're not under the law, 
right? We don't have to live with the loving instruction of our heavenly father who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. We've come up with our own thing. We don't want that. He says, you've forgotten the Torah of your Elohim. I will also forget your children. Look at what's happening in, in our country right now. Look at what the agenda being perpetrated against our children right now, right? Pray, pray, pray for our children and our grandchildren and for your friends, children and grandchildren and for your neighbors, grandchildren and children. Uh, pray for the children of the world right now. You know that these things have been just perpetrated. I, I, I shudder. At what's at what they've been born into, you know. All right. Hosea 4 7. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore will I change their glory into a shame. He's like, all your blessings, you know, you you it caused you to sin against me. It caused you to forget that I am the one who blesses you. They eat up the sin of my people and they set their heart on iniquity. It's like their hearts just longing for the sinful things. And there shall be like people, like priests, and I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their doings. <laughs> that reward's not a good reward. For they shall eat and not have enough, right? All the nutrients will be taken out of the food, Right? I'll pervert the, I'll allow the food to be so perverted that there's no nutrition in it anymore. Are we not living in that day? They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase because they've left off to take heed to Yahweh, right? He's saying their, their fertility, they're doing all these fertility rites. That's what all these, this ball worship was about. It was all fertility cults, right? And he's saying, I'm going to stop you from being fertile. I'll allow your fertility, your ability to reproduce, to be taken away from you. Are we not seeing this right now in this day? <laughs> well, look at the, the medical agenda that's taking place. That's exactly what's happening. If it doesn't kill you immediately, uh, it makes you to where you can't reproduce. All right. All right. Where was I at? Okay. Hosea 4.11. Hordem and wine and new wine. Take away the heart. My people ask counsel at their trees. Right. They're going to the trees. They're going to the Asherah poles. Okay. And. And their staff declares unto them, for the Ruach of whoredoms has caused them to err, and they have gone a whoring from under their Elohim. You know, look at look at what's been instituted. I did this on, on previous ones, showing the steeple and the Asherah poles everywhere. It's in all of all the places of conventional worship that are in this country. Okay. They sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains and burn incense upon the hills under oaks and poplars and elms because the shadow thereof is good. Therefore, your daughter shall commit whoredom and your spouses shall break wedlock. I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom, nor your spouses when they break wedlock for them for themselves are separated with whores and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore, the people 
that do not understand shall fall. Wow. It really is. You know, Stephanie's saying absolutely the food seems just poisonous now. It, yeah, so much of it, it has been poisoned. Much of it. And then Beth was saying what church houses have become here are about becoming more and more like belonging to little and large cults. Absolutely. You know, they're going along to get along. But it's not what y'all says. All right. So continuing on with some of this commentary from um, uh, Robert Cates. It was common in the ancient Near East for people to give their children names compounded with the name or an abbreviation of the name of their God. Little G, in case you're listening by podcast. Excavations of the cities of the Northern Kingdom reveal that of the names compounded with the name of a God, more than one out of three are formed with Baal. Look at that. When they've gone and done excavations of, of the territories of where those Northern Kingdom tribes were located, and they found evidence of how the people were being named, one out of every three had had a reference to Baal. Wow. That's a lot. These were the people, this is the house of Yasharel, <laughs> right? These are the 10 Northern tribes. Okay. This would indicate the tremendous popularity of Baalism in Israel. It is also quite interesting that the prophets of the Southern Kingdom do not indicate the same degree of problems with Baalism. Excavations of the Southern sites have yet to turn up a single name compounded with Baal. Thus, the excavations clearly indicate precisely what the prophetic messages had already indicated Baalism, while present in Judah, was a far more minor problem than in Israel, where such worship was apparently rampant. Very, very interesting, right? Okay, the ancient Canaanite literature from Ugarit has shown us the real nature of the Baalism of Canaan. Baalism was a fertility cult. The balls of the land were supposed to ensure that the people, the flocks, and the land itself were fruitful. The very nature of the worship appealed to the baser nature of the Hebrews, right? Flesh, <laughs> it appealed to their flesh. <laughs> That's the baser nature, right? And I have found that dealing with my own flesh, that my flesh is a tyrant, right? It screams. It, it, Yah tells us in his word that the flesh is in total enmity with him. Our flesh hates Yah in its ways. That's just the way that it is, right? So everything, you know, that the flesh, the flesh wants what the flesh wants, right? And so there is this baser nature that we're always dealing it. We have to overcome it by his Ruach, by his Ruach helping us, by his wisdom helping us, by operating in his knowledge, by getting 
his good, the good seed of his word implanted in our brains, right? So that it will produce good fruit in our lives and we won't be driven by this tyrant, the flesh. And we can learn to say, no, I'm sorry, not today. (laughs) That's not happening. We're not doing that today. Okay. So the ancient concept of localized gods for a particular region also had an influence on the adoption of Baalism by the Israelites. This is reflected by their request of Naaman of Syria that he be given two mules. Okay, we read about that in 2 Kings 5.17. He wanted two mules to take home with him so that he could worship the God of Israel. To Naaman's mind, the God of Israel was confined to the land of Israel, because this is how they understood the the gods. And it makes sense when you understand like the table of nations in Genesis uh, 10, 11, and 12, and you understand that that rulership uh, was given to the the Elohims, little little G, little little G gods, little E Elohims, you know, to rule over. Okay. They, they were able to rule over. You see them coming into the council in Job. You, I mean, there's lots of, you see this whole concept in Psalm 82, that this whole concept of, of the little G-gods that rule over the nations. But Yasharel, his people are for him. And he he's not limited to time or space, right? He chose a land for his people, but he's not limited to that land. Okay. Wherever we, I mean, read Psalm 139, wherever I go, there you are with me. Yah. If I go down to the depths of hell, if I raise up to the highest heavens, no matter what realm I'm in, no matter what land I'm in, he is always with us. He is, he's not in, in a box. Yah is not in a box. He's the creator of all. Okay. So because they had worshipped under systems that that had been divided, nations divided, and little G gods, Elohims, set up over them, the people thought that this is how Yahweh worked. But it's it's not how Yahweh works because he's the creator. <laughs> he's the creator of all those other little G gods, right? And he's the creator of all. And so he's not boxed in. Okay. So this is how what how Naaman was thinking about it. Okay. And you'll see that as we read through the story. Okay, so in this light, many Hebrews apparently believed that once they had entered the land of Canaan, they had to worship the gods of Canaan. All right. They're like, "Oh, well, you know, they, these people had had these gods here, right? And so we have to worship their Baals because they're over the land. That's what he's, they're thinking instead of understanding the limitless El Shaddai, the all sufficient one. Closely related to the concept of localized gods was the concept of functionalized gods. Many ancient peoples clearly believed that different gods had different functions. Thus, for example, in Egypt, one goddess was responsible for keeping the land free of frogs. 
while another was responsible for, for preserving the crops from locusts. See, the and we'll get into this later. I'm really looking forward to getting into the plagues and how these were all directed against the to 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 show the people of the land that lived in Egypt and to show Yah's people that were in the land of Egypt that that he was above all right because they prayed to you know a god uh, of of frogs that sh they would keep frogs banished and yet they had a plague of frogs you know and they prayed to this god that you know would keep the land free of locusts and yet he sends a plague of locust to just, I mean, they, these were directed against the mindsets that the people had of what they were worshiping, the, the little E, the, the Elohims, the false Elohims. Okay. All right. They needed another God to assure the abundance of crops Um all right, let me go back. In this light, many of the Hebrews apparently believed that God had shown himself to be able to deliver them from their enemies, but that they needed another God, little g, to assure the abundance of crops and children. It is against this background that we must understand Hosea's promises that God, that Yahweh, would show Israel that he could grow crops by taking them back into the wilderness and doing it in that barren region. The implication was that any God could produce crops in Canaan, but the God, the Elohim of Israel, could produce crops in the desert. We were looking at that earlier. All right. Okay. Now, a little more commentary looking at some things about King Ahab here. All right. So again, I'm looking uh, at commentary out of the book, The Sodic Country by Robert L. Cates. I took this part, uh, this portion that I'm sharing from pages 272 and 273. And I don't always, uh, what I do is I, I give you a synopsis of what I found in there, but I want you to know the source that I'm getting it from, right? So King Ahab was succeeded briefly in Israel by his son, Ahaziah. He too had at least one conflict with Elijah because he sought the help of the God of Ekron. We find this story in 2 Kings 1, 2 through 4. Following Ahaziah's death, his brother Jehoram became king. During this period, Elijah passed off the scene and was succeeded by Elisha. And we see this happen in 2 Kings 2, 9 through 12. With the death of Ahab and the subsequent turmoil created by the brief reign of Ahaziah, the military strength of the northern kingdom began to wane. Immediately upon the accession of Jehoram of Israel, Misha, the king of Moab, rebelled. However, Israel still appears to have been superior to Judah and to have led them in a coalition along with Edom in an unsuccessful attempt to bring Moab back into subjection. This is found in 2 Kings 3, 4 through 12 and 21 through 27. It was apparently almost successful, but failed due to the superstitious fear, which was engendered when the king of Moab sacrificed his own son. This victory of Moab is also commemorated 
on the Moabite Stella, which we'll we'll look at. Right. See, I, I love it that we can get this history from different cultures. OK, you know, because Israel as a whole, the whole a lot of their history has been destroyed, you know, because they've just been decimated time after time. Right. Okay. So the, the, and this story where he sacrifices his son, it, it was, it's a horrific story that we see as, as we read on, as we do the live reading, you'll see it. It just, it's just horrific. All right. So what is the, the Moabite Stella? It's, it's called the Mesha Steel, also known as the Moabite Stone. I found this information in Wikipedia. Uh, when you zero in on this thing, it's really interesting because it's written in that Paleo-Hebrew script, right? That, that's, this is what's so interesting to me all this time. This was the language uh, of, of the area, right? So the, the Moabite stone is a steel dated around 840 B, uh, BCE, okay, before the Common Era, uh, containing a significant Canaanite inscription in the name of King Mesha of Moab, a kingdom located in modern Jordan. Mesha tells how Chemosh, Chemosh the god of Moab, had been angry with his people and had allowed and had allowed them to be subjugated to the kingdom of Israel. But at length, Hamosh returned and assisted Misha to throw off the yoke of Israel and restore the lands of Moab. And so that this is, you know, the reason he sacrificed this king, sacrificed his his oldest son, was to get this God to help him, right? Misha also describes in his and in describes as many building project. It is written in a variant of the Phoenician alphabet closely related to the Paleo-Hebrew script. Oh, I'm so glad this, you know what? This is exactly why I do this. Past present herb says I'm learning so much. Thank you. I'm so glad. Yeah, it can be hard. I, this is why I wanted to do this study. I think it mirrors the time we live in. And it can be really hard to understand everything that was going on. Um, it can be some confusing books. Okay, so back to some more commentary here. I still gleaned this from The Saw to Country by Robert L. Cates, pages 273 and 274. So what he stated was during this period of history, Judah appears to have been at the beck and call of Israel. However, Jehoshaphat of Judah was not a non-entity. Jehoshaphat had been rather successful militarily in the region of Judah and was able to form a marriage alliance between his son, Jehoram, and Ath Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, right? So, you know, he they intermarry, right? So now we really have, you know, all these gods coming into Judah too through this marriage. It's opening the door, you know, wide up uh, for more apostasy to come into, into Judah, into the Southern kingdom. 
Okay, so we see this take place in 2 Kings 8.18. Following the death of Jehoshaphat, Jehoram succeeded to the throne of Judah, giving two kings by the same name, ruling in the two separate kingdoms. This is why this is confusing, right? Because how do we as the reader understand it's really hard unless you're just, you know, digging in line by line to understand that two kings in two separate kingdoms at the same time have the same name. <laughs> right? Okay. Jehoram of Judah immediately slaughtered his own brothers who might have become rivals for the throne. Reminds you of ancient Rome, right? <laughs> to me, it reminds me of what we we may soon see in our pol our own political uh, theater going on right now. Who knows what's going to happen? It looks like that's kind of what's what's happening. They're trying to get rid of one and institute somebody else. It'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. You know, it just made me everything was this the timing of everything is suspicious, and I don't know anything. This is just me you know, the, the wheels turning in my brain, no word from y'all. Right. But as I watched all the theater that went on with Kevin McCarthy becoming the, our new speaker of the house here in, in the United States, you know, there was a lot of theater. And then immediately, as soon as that is done, immediately now, suddenly all these classified documents are being found scattered everywhere Biden's been since he was vice president, you know, and, and, and our media that has just praised everything he's ever done, despite the overwhelming evidence of wickedness of him and his family, right? They, they continued to praise him. Somebody's decided his time's done in my opinion. Do I know anything? Absolutely not. Has y'all told me anything? Absolutely not. But I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, okay, succession wise, we've got him who obviously they are now dethroning, right? And then you've got waiting in the wing in the wings, Kamala Harris. Does anybody really think that that the powers that be are going to let her be on that throne, right? Or or could McCarthy's third in line? Now he's third in line. I think this is very interesting. As Rome fell, you see, and, and as Israel fell, what you see is constant assassinations and an overthrow of, of the governmental authorities and new regimes put in place. And, and I don't think that we live in different times. And like I said, just my opinion. I report, you decide. Okay, so following the death of Jehoshaphat, Jehoram succeeded to the throne of Judah, giving two kings by the same name, ruling in two separate kingdoms. Jehoram of Judah immediately slaughtered his own brothers who might have become rivals for the throne. During his reign, Judah lost control of Edom along with some of the Philistine territories. Meanwhile, in the northern kingdom, the conflict with the Syrians was renewed by the king of Syria with increased vigor. If it had not been for the aid and advice of the prophets, the northern kingdom might have been completely overrun. Furthermore, Elisha was also involved in a political coup in Syria itself. So even the prophet got involved. Here's an expert from that. It's from 2 Kings 8, 7. Elisha went to Damascus. 
the, the capital of Aram, where King Ben-Hadad lay sick. When someone told the king that the man of God had come, the king said to Hazael, take a gift to the man of Elohim. Then tell him to ask Yahweh, will I recover from this illness? I love this story. Oh, Stephanie said that this is, um, it, it seems to be happening in England too. Yeah, and actually in, in Israel too, from what I can see. <laughs> and I love this. <laughs> no, absolutely not for Kamala yet. No, they're not going to let her take that throne. It's not going to happen. <laughs> All right. Unless it's for a token moment, right? <laughs> okay. Let's go on with this story. So continuing with this story. Okay. Second Kings eight, nine through 15. So, um, so, so the prophet Elisha is, has been given a word on the kingdom of Aram, right? That he's delivering, not just a, a message for the kingdom of, of Israel or for uh, Yehuda, but for the kingdom of Aram. Okay. So Hazazel loaded down 40 camels with the finest products of Damascus as a gift for Elisha. He went to him and said, your servant Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, has sent me to ask, will I recover from this illness? And Elisha replied, go and tell him, you will surely recover. But actually, Yahweh had, has shown me that he will surely die. So he's talking to the messenger, right? Elisha stared at Hazael with a fixed gaze until Hazael became very uneasy. Then the man of Elohim started weeping. What's the matter, my Lord? Hazael asked him. Elisha replied, I know the terrible things you will do to the people of Israel. You will burn their fortified cities kill their young men with the sword, dash their little children to the ground and rip open their pregnant women. Hazael responded, how could a nobody like me ever accomplish such great things? Elisha answered, Yahweh has shown me that you are going to be the king of Aram. When Hazael left Elisha and went back, the king asked him, what did Elisha tell you? And Hazael replied, he told me that you will surely recover. But the next day, Hazael took a blanket, soaked it in water, and held it over the king's face until he died. Then Hazael became the next king of Aram. Wow, what a story in Second Kings, huh? All right. Continuing on with a little more commentary from These Sought a Country by Robert L. Cates, pages 274 to 280 is where I found this information. The picture in both Israel and Judah during the reigns of the two Jehorams, sometimes shortened to Joram, there's another clue that makes it, why is this so confusing sometimes, right? Sometimes it's spelled out Jehoram, sometimes it's just Joram, same person, but could be in either one of the kingdoms, right? 
All right. So the picture in both Israel and Judah during the reigns of the two Jehorams is one of dissolution and decay again. This time, however, the political dissolution was accompanied by the growing idolatry of both kings, as well as the injustice of the kings and their kingdoms. Furthermore, this time of difficulty found a growing dissatisfaction among the prophets of Yahweh who were on the scene. It was the sort of situation which could not long endure. The prophetic party intervened, taking the most active hand in governmental politics which they had ever had among the Hebrew people. It was the inevitable end of unrighteous governments faced by men of faith who were inexorably committed to personal and national allegiance to the Elohim of Israel, right? I mean, this is interesting to me because I believe that we are getting ready for a war and a wedding, right? I believe that the people of Yah are going to rise up like the, like the witnesses I, I I've, I've done, like, like something that this world has not seen in a long, long time, perhaps since these cataclysmic time periods, there's a few cataclysmic time periods, and I believe we're living in one, you know, it's going to be amazing to see Yah's people arise and have a hand in a major hand in, in what is happening, right? Okay. Let me put this up here from James. Thank you, James, for putting that. We do have a Telegram group and he's putting up the link. So it's in our chat and I just put it on here so everyone could see that. Okay. it's uh, You can get to it also through our website, www.heartofthetribeswithans.org. We've got a link where you can join there too. All right. Okay. So historians describe the next period of time as the prophetic revolution through the influence and instigation of the prophet's revolution and the overthrow of government and the overthrow of governments occurred shortly after the accession of Joash in Israel. The old prophet Elisha fell sick. The king went to visit weeping and crying out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. What he was doing, and this this story is found in 2 Kings 13, 14. It's, he was acknowledging that the real strength of the nation rested in its men of Elohim, right? That's where the strength was, was in men that followed Yah. Okay, so one last source which must be given thorough consideration if we're to understand the history of the era is the land itself. The geographical features, the ancient highways, and the location of the cities themselves all add to our understanding. Throughout this period, the northern kingdom, which, which was much more the object of foreign attack than was the southern kingdom. Furthermore, the northern kingdom had much greater ups and downs economically than did the southern one. It is easy to offer a theological rationale for these things, but the historian must also seek for the human and historical factors. You know, the theological reason is, you know, Yah decided which 
which tribes were getting which allotment of land. That's there's the theological reason for all of it, right? Because he's the one who's who was in charge of these things. <laughs> However, looking at it historically makes it helps us to understand how it ended up working that way. Okay. All right. So Palestine served as a major land bridge between Egypt in the Southwest and Mesopotamia in the North and Northwest. Okay. He's talking about, I don't think that it was called the land of Palestine at that point. It's Philistia, it's Canaan, right? So you can see it on the map. Here's Jehud, here's Judah and the Southern, and here's Israel and the Northern, right? And you see it's, we've got the great sea here, but then here's Egypt down here, Edom, Moab, Ammon. Okay. All kind of surrounding Judah and a little bit into Israel. Right. And, and it's, I wish this was more of a topographical picture and then maybe it would make even more sense, but look at a good map that shows the topography of what was going on and, and the natural mountains and hillsides and, you know, uh, forest and, and, and all the different things that would have, um, would have made this situation the way it was during the period of history. We are considering here, the world's major powers were Egypt and Assyria. Okay. Which are located on the two ends of this land. So we see Egypt here and it right up here, you see the word Phoenicia entire. This is Assyria up here. Okay. All right, so they were Assyria sitting basically to the north of, of the northern kingdom, Israel, and Egypt sitting to the south of Jehuda and the southern kingdom. Okay, so they're on the two ends of this land bridge. The reason, of course, Palestine was such an important bridge or that the land of Canaan was such an important bridge is that it is bounded on the west by the Mediterranean Sea and on the east by the Great Arabian Desert. So all of this out here, okay, on the east is all desert land. It's all wilderness out here. And then here's the sea, okay? So you've got a, a desert and a sea surrounding it and Egypt and Assyria on either end, okay? The reason, of course, Palestine was such an important bridge is that it was bounded on the west by the Mediterranean Sea and on the east by the Arabian Desert. Any trade caravans which moved between the two major regions had to move through Palestine. So you've got a world leader in Egypt, you've got a world leader in Assyria, and the only way they could get goods one to each other was through this land of Canaan. Okay, they had to pass through uh, Yehuda and Israel. So it was very important. This is why they call it a bridge. Okay. Any trade caravans which moved had to, okay, move through. Whoever controlled Palestine controlled the major part of the ancient Near East trade. Even more important, no armies could move in the region without marching through Palestine. So, I mean, permission had to be granted to march your armies through. Per, uh, ta uh, taxes, you know, had to be paid, right? On goods that would go through the land, 
Okay. So this was an, a very advantageous piece of land. Okay. So there were four major highways. They're called the North-South Highways of Ancient Canaan. One is called the Way of the Sea or the Coastal Route. You can kind of see it in this purple line right here. That was be the Way of the Sea. Um, the Water Parting Route or the Central Highlands Highway. I couldn't find a map that showed me that exactly. Okay. And then you've got the Jordan Valley Highway. And I couldn't see that one. But this one, the King's Highway, I was able to see right here in red. So you can see what this looked like, you know, for things to be able to pass through from one place to another. I just wanted to be able to show that to you guys. All right. So in Second Chronicles 7, 11 through 16, it says, thus Shalomah finished the house of Yahweh. Okay. So we're back to King Solomon for a moment here and the king's house and all that came into Shalma's heart to make in the house of Yahweh and in his own house, he prosperously effected. Okay. So he did all that was in his heart to do. He had huge building projects, which we've talked about. And Yahweh appeared unto El Shalmo by night and said unto him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place, right? This place to myself for a house of sacrifice. Interesting the wording there, isn't it? He chose this place as the house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. You know, one of the things that I, I became aware of right away when I started worshiping with others who were Torah observant and walking in this way of life is often they would turn towards the East to sing the Shema, right? And to pray for the peace of Yerushalayim. And I, I even do that. I keep that marked in, in my mind, in my own house, when I'm, I turn towards that place, you know, because I'm thinking about that. Yah chose that place for his people and he will bring us back again to that land. And I am looking for that in my heart. And so I keep that in my mind, in my prayers, because I, I know that, you know, yes, he is everywhere but there is something special that he has for his people. He's always wanted something good and special for his people. And that's the place where he chose to put his name. In Second Chronicles 7, 17 through 22. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David, your father walked and do according to all that I've commanded you and shall guard my statutes and my judgments, then will I establish the throne of your kingdom according as I have covenanted with David, your father, saying, there shall not fail you a man to be ruler in Yashorel. 
But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I've set before you, and shall go and serve other Elohim and worship then, then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land, which I have given them, and this house, which I've sanctified for my name, will I cast out of my sight and will make it to be a proverb and a byword among all nations. What does that mean? They're like, wow, did you see what their God did to them? <laughs> That's what that means, right? And this house, which is high, shall be an astonishment to everyone that passes by it so that they shall say, why has Yahweh done this unto this land and unto this house? And it shall be answered because they forsook Yahweh, Elohai, of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Mitzrayim and laid hold on other Elohim and worship them, and serve them. Therefore has he brought all this evil upon them. Okay. Looking a little further into the story. Here I've got a picture of Elijah being taken away, and then Elisha's given the mantle. Because this is what we see all throughout uh, when we read through the book of Second Kings, and I do the reading for the book of Second Kings, look at the miracles that were going on in the midst. I'm really going into the history here, but the word speaks for itself on the abundance of miracles that were taking place by Yah's men, by Yah's prophets, by what he was doing through his people and for his people in the midst of this chaotic situations of nations and leaders and wickedness in high places. Okay, 2 Kings 2, 9 through 14. When they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken away. And Elisha replied, please, let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah replied. If you see me when I'm taken from you, then you will get your request. But if not, then you won't. <laughs> He's saying you better be right next to me when I'm taken. Right. As they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them. And Elijah was carried by a whirlwind, right? A sayir, a tornado into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, my father, my father, I see the chariots and the charioteers of Israel. And as they disappeared from sight, Elisha tore his clothes in distress. Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak, which had fallen when he was taken up. Then Elisha returned to the bank of the Jordan River. He struck the water with Elijah's cloak and cried out, Where is Yahweh, the Elohim of Elijah? Then the river divided and Elisha went across. Amazing. So this map just kind of gives a, a little bit of graphic of where all 
Elijah and Elisha were ministering all over. I mean, you can see here Elijah um, at Jezreel is pronouncing doom on Ahab and Jezebel. You know, you see Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel up here, right? Um, Elisha, and then he runs, right? He runs all the way to Jezreel. Look at this. You know, he outran Ahab's chariot, telling him it's going to rain. It's going to rain. It hadn't rained in three and a half years. And he's like, it's about to start raining. You better watch out. It's going to rain. Right. Then when he runs from Jezebel, he's taken over here to Tishbe. He's fed by the ravens uh, during a drought. Right. And um, here's his birthplace that he went back home. And that's where we can see that here. And then here, Abel Mohalath, we see the birthplace of Elisha, right? So he was working at, when Elijah passed by, at working with his oxen. And Elijah passes by and he follows him and begins to minister with him. Here, Elisha leads the Armenian troops from Dothan to Samaria. And here in Dothan to Samaria. So here was the capital of the northern kingdom right here, right? Um, Elisha prophesies uh, the lifting of the Armenian siege here. Elisha cures the, the poisonous stew. Here's an interesting story. It takes place in Gilgal. Um, I couldn't quite get the what happened here at Bethel. But right down here is when Elijah was taken up by the whirlwind of heaven. Look down at the bottom of the Jordan River. And here's some boys in 2 Kings 2, 23. Boys are jeering Elisha and they're attacked by two bears down here. So I just thought this was interesting to see. You know, they were just all over this territory. All right. Well, that was what I had to share with you guys today. I hope that this has been a blessing to you. I hope you have enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoy the readings of uh second kings and uh i'm not quite sure when, when we're, we're going to air those yet i've got to record them <laughs> all right i'm thinking as i'm talking <laughs> all right so love you guys have a wonderful day and i hope you will join lee and james tonight for between the river and the ravens and that you'll be back with lee tomorrow morning for mercy poured forth and then by tomorrow night Robert and I should be with Lee and James in Tennessee. So pray for our safe travels and uh, we'll be joining you there for um, Let's Talk Torah. Alrighty. Shalom. Day and night and night and day The living creatures give their praise To Him who lives eternally They never cease from saying Holy, holy is Yahweh